This is the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm your host, Ren Wadsworth. And I'm your other host, Maximus Hunter. We're joined today in the studio by our reporter. I'm Brittany Liskey. Thanks. And we're going to have a great show coming up for you. Today is um, Thursday. That's what day it is. Thursday, January 30th, 2020. And you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review here on 90.5 KCSU, Fort Collins. Uh, our listener question for today is, um, have you ever been stranded in the snow? And uh, what happened? Because we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. That actually happened um, to a couple, a local couple, uh, who were stranded for two days. And we're going to talk about that and also some new uh, suggestions slash guidelines that um, the state has been making for driving up to ski areas in the wintertime. Because uh, it can be tough sometimes. Those roads aren't very safe. Well, yeah. they are, but they can- sometimes they're not. <laughs> Yeah, also on our show, we're going to have uh, Lynn Bolin with the Gregory Alicar Museum, and we're going to be talking about one of the exhibitions there. And then we're going to go ahead with some national news and another roundtable. Yeah, and that roundtable is uh, going to be about something that happened during the continuing uh, impeachment hearings. Specifically, uh, we're not, we're not going to be talking about the hearings themselves, but the arguments uh, President Trump's lawyer made yesterday that uh, as president, the president acts in the public interest and what that might particularly mean when it comes to this case and also the bigger scale of things. But before all that, we have a little bit of campus news with our very own Brittany, if you'd like to kick it off. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Brittany Liskey, and this is your campus news on 90.5 at KSU-FM in Fort Collins. On the rise is some new technology that may help put an end to ditching class. A former zoo basketball coach developed an app called Spotter that lets teachers track their students so they are able to tell if they attend class or not. It works by using short-range phone sensors and campus-wide Wi-Fi networks. The university will be able to tell when a student crosses a classroom threshold to enter or leave as a cell phone pings off of a beacon stashed in the room. This can also be a helpful device for students with the feature that notifies students that they are not in class in case they forget. However, this new technology does have some people questioning if it crosses a boundary into being too invasive and what type of privacy rights the students would be giving up to attend public universities and use this new technology. I, I, I for one, would have a hard time with that. I feel that too, Max. <laughs> And for Black History Month, Colorado State University will be hosting a keynote with one of the exonerated five who were wrongly convicted of a, assaulting a female jogger in New York Central Park in 1989. Yusuf Salam, whose wrongful conviction and eventual exoneration made national headlines, will be speaking in the Lori Student Center Theater on Tuesday, February 4th at 6 p.m. This is only one of the over 30 events set for Black History Month at CSU. Other events include a keynote with author Lawrence Ross on February 17th, as well as a disability lawyer and author Haben Gurma, who advocates for equal opportunities for people with disabilities and will be speaking on February 26th. You can find a complete list of events and information by going to baacc.colostate.edu. And for questions, you can email baacc underscore email at mail.colostate.edu. And as I'm sure everyone is familiar with, there will be some new construction taking place on the CSU campus during the spring semester. While this may not feel ideal for those trying to get around campus, some new things to look forward to over the next 24 months are a new state-of-the-art heating and cooling system, a renovated Shepherdson Hall to be known as the 
Nutrient Agricultural Sciences Building, in addition to the Diversity House, renovation in addition to the north side of the Lori Student Center, creation of the student housing of Meridian Village on the former side of Aylesworth Hall, and numerous improvements to alternative, alternative transportation and pedestrian byways around the main campus. You can find construction updates, detour maps, and multiple other related resources on the construction parking update page, which is which is source.colostate.edu slash construction dash and dash parking. And as said by the vice president for university operations, and maybe it get maybe get a bit muddy and our familiar travel routes may be affected, but the end result is going to allow CSU to become an even more sustainable, navigable, and beautiful place to learn and work. My name is Brittany Liskey, and this was your campus news on the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Thanks, Brittany. Yeah, and thank you, Brittany. Yeah, I uh, hope that that nutrition and agricultural hall has a good dining hall. Yeah, I better. <laughs> Not that I'm complaining about it. We're keeping our fingers crossed. Here. Right? No, the dining halls are awesome. Yeah, but more is always better. Uh, especially in terms of food. <laughs> what's our what's our what's our favorite dining halls if we had to pick one? Oh, the Foundry. Hey, that's oh what I was gosh. gonna say. I love the Mediterranean food. I love. Um, I love. I forget what it's called, but the international. Um, it, that's the one where they always they, they always change it yeah, up, they right? Switch it. So whenever it's Indian night, well, I don't I don't have any meal swipes anymore. But whenever it used to be Indian night or Mediterranean night, I would always go over there and. Rub. I've got I've got a friend over there who sometimes gives me the hookup with the food. Nice. What's your favorite, Brittany? My go-to was always Durrell. Mm. Those um, getting your omelets made and your eggs made in the morning, and then your pasta made at night. That was that was pretty awesome. That was pretty cool. I I miss uh, I miss the Parmalee Dining Hall that is now the Foundry solely because. Uh, they made these parm burgers, and I I don't know what it was about the burgers because they were just like normal burgers, but <laughs> they were better. They exactly. I miss the it. parm burgers. Uh, right? Like sometimes you had a craving that could only be solved by a parm burger. But let's move on. Uh, well, <laughs> let's move on. But we're gonna ask that question again to our listeners about. Um, have you ever been stuck in the snow? Because our roundtable is going to talk directly about that. So if you've ever been stuck in the snow or if you were able to get out of the snow in or, your car. Or you just had some interesting snow car related yeah. experience. Go ahead and share that with us at 970-491-5278. Once again, that number is going to be 970-491-5278. Um, however, we're going to talk directly about something that happened to a couple here in Colorado. Um, so they actually got trapped inside of their car for two days and were able to survive which blows my mind yeah i i would not make it i have uh <laughs> some lentils that my parents gave me for christmas i got a nice photo album so i can like look back at all my childhood memories and be sad i'm <laughs> oh, trapped no. in a car and you uh have photo albums in your car yeah I, not for any particular reason besides i haven't migrated them to my house yet okay you know sometimes stuff just lives in the car for a bit fair enough how prepared are you Brittany? Um, I feel like I'm pretty prepared. Ever since high school, my dad's always made me keep some snow boots and a winter jacket in my back trunk, and ever since then, I've just kept it there. So, nice. the day comes, I'll be ready. So, uh, these people were actually found by Larimer County officials. Uh, the car was completely trapped under snow, and uh, they they couldn't get out. So, uh, in the end, it, they were very lucky that they were they were found quickly. But uh, that 
it segues kind of nicely into. Oh wait, I'm sorry, Ren. I didn't ask you. What do you have in your car to stay prepared? Uh, oh well, I'm actually pretty prepared. Not because my dad made me. Nothing wrong with that, however. Um, because I used to drive a 1990 like Toyota Camry that would always break down. Would always just like die at the worst possible moment and i had to drive three hours to get home in like blizzard snow over castle rock and that terrified me so i have like a blanket i have antifreeze i have oil i now have kitty litter because my car got stuck which that segues right into our next uh topic uh so colorado right now is trying to really enforce that people take the bus um to ski resorts instead of driving one, because a lot of people's cars aren't able to make it up the mountain, and two, because it cuts down on traffic. Well, and uh, most major ski areas have buses from uh, most major areas in Colorado to get to them. I know from Fort Collins, um, we have a series of buses that leave from CSU, and then there are additional buses um, run by uh, resorts and ski areas and the like that uh, are making trips to, I know, uh, Loveland, Vail, Aspen has one. I mean, that's a heck of a trip, but uh, they have one. Uh, Winter Park has one. Copper has one. So there's lots of opportunities to take public transit to um, to ski areas. But also, I, I think it probably should be said that that's a long time to be on a bus like that. Well, the nice thing about it, though, is that it actually is going to end up costing you much less than it would cost you for gas. Um, it's only $25, I believe, what... Uh, the the website was saying it was only $25, which to all of those already cost much less for gas, at least in my car. My car costs about $40 to make it to Steamboat or any of those farther away ones. Maybe it's about the same for the ones that are an hour away, but that's a pretty good price. Yeah, no, that's really not bad. I mean, it, it is price effective and it is, it's better for the environment and it prevents people from driving poorly on the uh, highway. My the only reason I, I say I don't want to be on a bus that long is because I'm uh, the one that this is addressing. I'm the person this article is addressing. <laughs> I'm the one who needs to be listening to this. I'm the one who needs to get on the bus. Honestly. Yeah. I think that's what's happening right now. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this, Brittany? Um, I think it's a good idea too. Like Max said, it is better for the environment rather than every single person bringing up their own car. Um, it would make me feel a lot safer going up, honestly, because for me personally, I don't really like to drive in the snow, so that would kind of cut down on the stress for me. I don't have to stress, stress about other people driving in the snow. Yeah, I know I personally will not partake in this. A little bit of the other side, the flip side. Um, I personally, when I was in marching band, was in a bus crash. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so a little bit of traumatized by buses in snowy areas. But also, I just trust myself and my car more than I trust someone else in a bus. Well, no, um, I think that's a great, to get a me great there. point. And I also bought a car, not specifically to go to like ski resorts, but to handle the Colorado weather. Um, and to handle handle going up in the mountains. So I know that my car can handle it, but I think this really is addressing, like Max said, those cars that really just can't make it up there without getting stuck, without needing some assistance, without or, or Even towing. if you just don't have snow tires, better safe than sorry, right? Yeah, I know. Sometimes I see like little tiny Volvos or like Volkswagens with like ski racks on top, and I'm like, what are yeah, you doing, man? Yeah, you're just man? like, how are you gonna get up there? I'm like, 
good for you, but um... I mean, sometimes even if your car is like fully prepared, I seventy can be terrifying. Uh, yeah, Brittany, I know you and I two years ago were on the scariest uh, I seventy drive of my I life. I do remember that, Max. That was one of the worst drives of my life too. We were driving to Aspen for the X Games, and it took about six to seven hours to get there. Just terrible weather. Just terrible weather, middle of the night, low, low, low visibility. And, you know, you're in the car with all your friends, so I'm glad we didn't try and, like, take a bus or a van. I I was glad we were driving. We could have one person watching the map and one person watching the road and one person driving. That is true. I felt more comfortable driving in that situation because I was with my friends that I trusted. That That was pretty wild, though. And you were in the other car than me. And uh, I was like, gosh, I hope those guys are like doing better than we are because we, we were, were just like freaking out. We were having out. a hard time, Max. <laughs> yeah, so maybe maybe the uh, maybe the buses and the the transit is definitely uh, definitely an option worth considering for some of us. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was thinking about though is while it does cut down on traffic, that is if everything goes as planned. Once again, if it doesn't um, end up in a crash or skid out, because if buses get in crashes, it causes a lot a lot of traffic this is true um i don't know i'm just really wary of buses i've been on some of those mountain top roads and i don't know how comfortable i would feel with a bus taking those sharp turns um and it might end up causing i don't want to say more traffic but causing traffic as well just because of how slow they have yeah to go the to buses get up. can't move that fast especially on i-70 i mean we, we, there's already a fair bit of, of bus transit between here and yeah. there. It's, it seems to work fine, especially, you know, uh, for s- somewhere like Winter Park or Loveland. If you want to go all the way to Aspen, now that's, uh, you know, crossing Vail Pass in a bus is probably a bit of a headache. But, you know, for somewhere not too far away, uh, you know, there's a, a fair amount of it already happening. And it, it works okay. I've yeah. definitely been annoyed by slow buses on the road before, but I've also used them and thought it was fine. Yeah, I definitely think it's a good idea. I think uh, it comes from a good place, but I do not think I will be one to participate in this. Um, I also, something else to think about is equipment. If everybody on that bus is bringing their own skiing or snowboarding equipment, how much room that takes, how inconvenient that is for the people on the bus. I don't know if there's under well, storage. Usually, usually those ones, they have the thing on the outside where okay. you can stick your skis or boards in. Okay. Yeah, I have seen that where the skis and the snowboards go on the outside of the bus. I've only seen the ones where they can hold a couple. I've never seen it where they could hold more than like five. Uh, I've seen some, I've definitely seen okay. some pretty major ones. Very before. cool. All right. Well, I think that's about all we have to talk about for that i think we really covered everything we could possibly cover for that one so Um, uh, but we still would like to hear from you um if you've been stuck how'd you get out um what what? did you do were you scared and and let's enter our next topic now too so uh if we're going to be talking about abstract art specifically the exhibit uh circle at serre at the gregory gregory allicare museum uh i'm really hoping i got that right i took spanish close Close. yeah (laughs) okay (laughs) Uh, we're gonna we're gonna learn how to pronounce it. That's the first thing we're gonna learn. But yeah, we're gonna be talking about that. And uh, so, if you have any questions about abstract art, we've got Lynn Boyland here, and he's gonna be here to answer some of our questions and about the museum in general. So, if you want to know more about that, text in to nine seven zero four nine one KCSU. That's nine seven zero four nine one five two seven eight. 
Yeah, but before we do that, we're going to have a little break. But once again, stay tuned for Lynn Boylan. We're going to do a little bit of National uh, Days with me, a little bit of Weather with Max, and we're going to have another roundtable that we discussed earlier, if Max wants to talk a little bit more about that. Yep, uh, that one is going to be about the argument brought up at the president's impeachment trial by his lawyer that uh, the president's actions, no matter what he does, are in the interests of the nation. So therefore... He, if he chooses, in, in the specific case of the impeachment, if he chooses to interfere with the election, that's because his re-election is in the interest of the nation. And well, what that argument could mean in general as a precedent for the United States. All right. So stay tuned for all of that right after the break. This is the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm your host, Ren Wadsworth. And I'm your other host, Max Hunter. Um, we are sitting with our wonderful guest, Lynn Boland. We'd like to say hi. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for being back, Lynn. All right, so we're going to be talking today about, I'm going to try my best to do this again, <laughs> um, Circle at Acer? Circle at Carré. Oh, you yeah. got it. You got it. Ren's got you. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully, you Two know. years of French. <laughs> this is what I get for taking Spanish. It's okay. They're both romance languages. So, um, anyway, so tell us a little bit about the ex- exhibition uh, Circle at Carré. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a, an artistic group that was formed in Paris in 1928, lasted a couple years, had one exhibition in 1930. They were based in Paris, but it was really an international group. So this included artists from Eastern and Western Europe, Russia, North and South America. Uh, it included both emerging and very established artists. So they're they're and you know, nearly a hundred years later, some of the artists who participated are very well known. Others you probably never heard of, but it's a pretty spectacular collection of abstraction happening in the period between the two world wars. Um kind of all brought together in in one place so you can really see it all right on so who are some of those more well-known artists yeah absolutely well Vasily Kandinsky was a member of the group and he's included in the exhibition we have a really wonderful painting by Kandinsky Um, some of the other members included former cubist artist Fernand Leger uh, Le Corbusier people like Alexandra Exter um, Oh, you know, the list goes on and on. All the people I've just named are in the exhibition. There were some others that aren't included in this show. People like Pete Mondrian, Kurt Schwitters, um, some folks like that. But this exhibition has some artists who weren't part of this group, but were kind of part of the scene at the time. So Sonia Delaunay is included in the exhibition at our museum. She wasn't a member of the group, but she was very supportive of them. And she she visited the show. She knew the members. Um, so... Yeah, those are some of the bigger names, but, you know, I could go on. So uh, we've got a a lot of questions here, and I'm going to start with um, this one before I get – because I have a lot of things I'm interested about this. But for those who are listening who may not be super familiar with the term, how do you define abstract art? You know, that's a great question because it gets defined in different ways, and that very question was kind of at the heart of a lot of debates – 
that were coming up during the formation of the group and even during their first exhibition. There was a fist fight during the opening <laughs> really? of the show. Yeah, people took this stuff really seriously because it wasn't just art. It wasn't just aesthetics. This was a way of communicating ideas that are going to change the world. This was following World War One. They wanted to avoid that happening again. Now, okay, so they were unsuccessful. World War II <laughs> happened, right? Yeah. But they were trying, and that's what that's what all of this was about. It, um, you know, they're not just um, you know designs for a necktie. They're 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 works of art that are meant to be uh, embedded with deep meaning that can really change people's lives. Um, so this idea of abstract um, at its you know at kind of one end and the most um, you know, extreme definition, it would be something that has no reference to anything in the visible world. So these are colors and shapes that are, oh, you know, really formed in one's mind. Uh, it's not based on anything. It's not inspired by anything you see. But there was really a range of abstraction happening at the time and in this exhibition. So you have some work that you'll come to the show and you will see a figure or, um, you know, a, a, the front of a building, things like that. There are elements that are recognizable in some of the artist's work. So, you know, in a loose sense, it would still fall under the, the definition of abstract art. Um, some people will make a distinction. So abstracted versus totally abstract art. Uh, you know, at the time, the, the term was used in different ways. And a lot of times they'd make a distinction. So if it had no, you know, uh, no relationship to the visible world, sometimes it would be called non-objective art. So you'll hear that term bandied about some. In but the not subjective literature. art. Just non-objective art. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's so pretty funny. how does the name, how does their name, Circle Lake Carre, uh, tie into abstract art? And what does Circle Lake Carre mean? Great question. So it's French for circle and square. Um, it... You know, here again, they debated the name of the group for a long time, and they they didn't settle on it, in fact, until one of the co-founders, an artist by the name of Pierre Daura, designed a logo for the group. And everybody loved the logo so much, they were willing to accept the name. <laughs> um, and for different people, it meant different things. So one of the co-founders, this Belgian poet, critic, later a visual artist named Michel Souffour, said for him, the circle and the square was the embodiment kind of of all things and all binaries and all differences. So it was this idea of this kind of universal, these universal forms coming together, uh, reconciling all differences, really. For other people, it meant different things. When Kandinsky joined the group, he really liked the logo, and he, he wrote to them that you know he really liked the name and the logo. He said, for me, the circle is the most significant form. Didn't mention the square at all. Really didn't care about the square. But they had the circles. So it was like they, they got circles, I'm in. Right. They made Kandinsky happy. <laughs> Meanwhile, you've got, you know, kind of a Russian contingent of artists who were, uh, you know, very into the square. <laughs> like Kazimir Malievich and, and his famous The Black Square of 1913. Sounds ominous. So, <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, I I was studying that painting in a museum, had to look at it for a few hours. I've never fielded so many questions of what in the world are you seeing there? So I know a lot of artists uh, study circles and squares, and they almost relate circles as being feminine and squares as being masculine with the angle, angles and the um, curves. 
How do you feel about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something actually in Sufor when he was talking about it, I think that made its its way onto the list of the various things that this would embody for him. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I personally now in 2020 try to avoid those kind of, you know, gendered forms <laughs> along with colors. But yeah, there's something to that. And certainly 100 years ago, um, you know, I think there were associations there. Now, that's not to say that there weren't plenty of female artists painting very angular works or male artists painting very kind of soft curvilinear forms. Um, you know, so it's not a hard and fast association, but yeah, we, we see some of that for sure. So I'm curious about the nature of this exhibit. Is this exhibit a kind of a re-exhibitation of these, of this, uh, I'm just going to say circle and square. Yeah, that's, of, that's, of the circle and square group, fair. or is it on, on more of an ex exploration and investigation into them as a historical piece? Oh, that's a great question. It's kind of both. And it started out as one and then became both rather than just the one. So, you know, a little quick backstory. I, uh, I was working on my PhD at the University of Texas at Austin and um, saw the job posting for Curator of European Art at the Georgia Museum of Art at University of Georgia. That's where I did my undergrad. Uh, so it piqued my interest, but it was also right up my alley in terms of what they were looking for in this curator. They wanted somebody to organize this exhibition, actually, on, on the Circle and Square group. Uh, and so I, I took the job and uh, moved back to Athens, Georgia, and they wanted me to recreate this exhibition from 1930. Well, I didn't know any better. I said, sure. <laughs> so, you know, I'm spending years. I worked on this show for four years, um, hunting down paintings all over the world, working off a checklist, the titles of which were mostly the words abstract and or composition, which doesn't give you a whole lot to hang your hat in, on. In the whole world of abstract art. <laughs> right? Yeah, find that one. I had some grainy black and white photos. So after a lot of research, I, I had hunted these things down, and they were scattered to the winds. Obviously, a lot of them were in Europe, but some were in, you know, there were some in Johannesburg and Montevideo and Tel Aviv. They were all over the place. Wow. The, the shipping cost for it, well, we got the quote. When I picked my jaw up off the floor, I realized that that $750,000 shipping quote was one Ooh. way. We'd still have to get them back. Oh. Uh, so, you know, that would have been the recreation of the 1930 show. But I don't know that there's a museum in the world that could afford that. that. So we went a different <laughs> yeah. route. They, we had kind of a core of these works in European museums. We still borrowed those, but the museum at Georgia started to put together a collection of works on paper by a lot of the lesser known artists who were members of the group. Already in the collection of that museum was a Kandinsky, a Fabius Leger. Um, some of the other kind of big names were already represented, but it was the, the lesser known artists that needed to fill it out. So uh, long story short, there was a pretty aggressive acquisition campaign, had to do some fundraising, had to had to research each and every work to make sure, A, that it was what it purported to be. But also, this is during a time, uh, especially in Europe, where you have to be concerned uh, to make sure things weren't essentially stolen by the Nazis. So you have to research the provenance to make sure that it hadn't been seized by the Nazis and then sold to somebody else later. Uh, so we ended up assembling the collection that is now at the Gregory Alucard Museum of Art and the University Center for the Arts. Um, 
nearly 60 works by these artists. Wow. Now, the downside was that you know we weren't able to purchase that work that was in the 1930 exhibition. Um, you know, so they're alternates, but what that offered then was really a broader picture of abstraction in the 20s and 30s because there are works that are before the group was formed, works after the group was formed. So you really get this range. You know, they were all about creating this universal language, this international spirit of art. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, at the same time, there are you know, pretty profound differences between the styles of these artists and oftentimes based on what group they were a part of or what country they were from. So this exhibition really is a chance in a, in a nutshell to get this great overview that you would probably have to travel to, you know, major museums throughout the world to see all of these artists. And kind of compare them and see, you know, how, I mean, they all work together in this group and see, yeah, you say you have stuff from before and after too and you can... Yeah. You know, I, do, do you think that uh, this is a, that's a, this is a question? Do you think that the uh, the group Circle at Square actually changed their, them stylistically? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you could see it in the show in one work in particular. There are others, but one really comes to the fore for me. So there was an artist named Marcel Kahn. Now she had studied with this uh, group of kind of Cubist artists uh, known then as purists. Fernand Leger was one of her teachers. Amade Ozenfant was another one. So she was coming out of this Cubist style. Um, then she participated in Circle and Square. Now, Circle Carré had members of all of the major artistic movements in Europe. So she was exposed to Dutch de style, think Pete Mondrian. She was exposed to Dada and this use of found inexpensive materials, trash off the street. Um, and you almost immediately see it reflected in her work where it becomes, mm, the compositions start to look much more like what the Dutch de style artists were doing, but she's assembling it from kind of found pieces of cardboard like the Dada artists. So yeah, they were definitely learning from one another, especially the younger artists. You know, the, 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 the older guys were pretty much set in their ways, but, um, you know, one of the great things about the group was that it included multiple generations. Also, for its time, it included a lot more women than were in any other artistic group in Europe at the time. Maybe short of Dada. Dada, Dada was pretty equitable. But compare it, for instance, to surrealism. And they, they were opposed to surrealism. They were formed in part to oppose surrealism. Surrealism, almost all guys. Um, Circle and square, okay, not 50-50, but for its time, they were doing pretty well. I think it's about 25% female artists. Right on. Yeah. And could you describe uh, what surrealism is in a little more depth? Absolutely. So, you know, surrealism, you know, the classic image that I think comes to most of our minds is some melting watches by Salvador Dali. And that's very true. You know, that's a painting from, from the 30s. Um, best known in the United States though. So what they were seeing in Europe was really a wider variety. It included that kind of very naturalistic painting of somebody like Salvador Dali, but it also included total abstractions by people like Andre Masson. Um, you know, he, he didn't have a lot of money, Masson, so he, he didn't have much food. So he'd, he'd be laying in his bed, staring at his ceiling, hallucinating. And that's where a lot of his imagery would come from. So that kind of points to an important difference. And one of the reasons why the Circle and Square group didn't like the Surrealists is that 
Circle and Square was all about this internationalism and creating this international language of abstraction that was very universal. The surrealists were were looking inward. They were they were trying to draw on their subconscious. So it was a very kind of subjective approach, which for the abstractionists, the geometric abstractionists was just far too individualistic. They it wanted was kind of beside global. the point of what they were trying to do. Huh? Yeah, it really was. That and, you know, one of the co-founders of this group, Joaquin Torres Garcia, Uruguayan artist, um, he was a staunch Catholic and he really hated Dali's imagery. Dali kind of made a splash in 1928, right when this group was formed. And, uh, you know, he had some pretty shocking paintings. We think of the Melted Watches, but, um, you know, Google Salvador Dali 1928 and you'll see some things that I would need words I can't use on the radio to describe. Oh, I've got so. a crazy Dolly poster in my room. <laughs> All right. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> maybe a little. So something I thought was interesting that you touched on a little bit before was the international spirit of uh, art. Mm -hmm. So what is that exactly? Because it's in the title of your exhibit, right? Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. Well, you know, for these artists, it was it was their goal, really. Um, you know, this was all on the heels of World War One. And all of these artists had in one way or another, uh, you know, either fought in the war or were witness to the destruction and devastation that had happened. So, you know, everybody was really looking for a way to avoid that sort of thing. But there were a lot of different approaches to that. So for the abstractionists, it really was about creating this language that was independent of a kind of national style. So in the history of art, you know, you could point to the Italian Renaissance style or maybe the Italian Baroque and differentiate it from the French Baroque style, both happening at the same time, having some similarities, but some, you know, important differences that you could recognize in your eye. They were trying to break away from that. They were trying to cross national boundaries with their artistic style and now, they say if it ain't baroque don't fix it <laughs> i couldn't help myself that was a good one <laughs> well you know what artists called their art in the 17th century it wasn't baroque baroque means misshapen pearl and was a derogatory term applied later you That's know what an artist working in the 17th century called their art what do they call it modern Oh yeah. I was oh, like, they they called did. It yeah, that's <laughs> Maybe modern. with an E on it, right? If they're in modern Italy, a. but no, it was modern. Modern is a term stuck in the in the 20th century, in the early 20th century. It was all about making it new, and so everything was about being modern, and that became so important that that term stuck around. And it's now like, we're it's stuck like with the term it. like new wave music, right? For really old music. Right. Well, hey, what? Well, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay, maybe me. I didn't. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> no, no, it's been a while. Oh, <laughs> All right, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna start wrapping it up here, but uh, first we're gonna two final questions. First final question. So how was the original circle and square received? Oh, it, it was horribly received actually. <laughs> no, you know, so the artists in Paris loved it. They had a lot of support from their fellow artists, um, you know, of all styles really. And a lot of people visited the show. Pablo Picasso came every day. Oh, he lived in an apartment above the gallery, so he had to walk through it on his way out. But, you know, he, he was there every day. It's the thought that counts. He, he stopped and looked. He was appreciative. Um, <laughs> now I forgot where I was going with that. Think uh, about Pablo Picasso. He's yeah, interesting right? life. Yeah, yeah. It totally threw me off. Um, no, seriously, where was I going with that? What was um, the it was received. It wasn't received oh, so well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the critics trashed it because they were kind of stuck between – 
you know, to to a rock and a hard place. So for the general public, they you know the general public still hadn't fully accepted abstraction as a valid means of expression in 1930. So for anybody who was kind of conservative, they were still way too far out. But for the kind of avant-garde art press, well, this is stuff that had been going on for more than a decade. So it was seen as kind of old hat and, you know, a little tired. So they were getting it on both ends there. They were criticized by the critics for being alternatively too cutting edge or too conservative. And then... You know, their one exhibition was in April of 1930. Well, in October of 1929, the stock market crashed. Everybody Ooh, went yeah. broke. It spread throughout the world. It wasn't a great time to sell art. So, as it's reported, not a single work sold in their exhibition. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, the beauty is that, well, and so the artists didn't want anything. They wouldn't even include it in their resume uh. for decades. But about 1950, it starts to show back up. And... Artists and scholars started to realize, hey, wait a minute, this thing mattered. This thing made a difference. This group, although short-lived, led to all these other things. And then it started to matter again. So it, it kind of came back. But at the time, in 1930, uh, by everybody but the artists, it was really poorly received. Well, that goes right in hand with our last question about how it's been received at your museum oh it's been great <laughs> so, so i don't know you know we've gotten a little bit of press the press has been far kinder now 90 years later uh some of our art professors have been in and are excited to be bringing their classes so now it's been a great reaction so far it's, it's been terrific to have it in the museum right on and can people come visit absolutely we are open tuesday through saturday 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. We're open late Thursday nights. So we're open until 7.30. So, you know, wait until the, the segment's over. Or the show, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, head on down to the UCA. Look for the giant soup can out front. Perfect. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add about uh, Circle at Carré or the exhibition in its... Well, we've got some great programs around it. So a week from tomorrow, we've got the public reception so food and, and uh, you know, a chance to celebrate the show. What kind of food? Uh, you know, <laughs> we're still figuring that out, but it's going to be tasty. We're going to up our game for this one. Let so we're, we're talking to some we're talking to some places. Sounds uh, good. We're, we're locking that one in as, as we speak, I think. A um, bunch of programs, but the standout, the one I have to make sure everybody knows about is Wednesday, March 25th. A scholar and performer and composer and conductor named Luciano Quesa. Uh, is going to come. He's going to talk to us about Italian futurism, but better yet, he's going to perform some of the Italian futurist poetry. This is something he's done at the Guggenheim. He's done it around the world. Um, and he's going to play one of Luigi Rosolo's noisemaker instruments and some other stuff. There's some surprises in store, but I, I can't say enough can't spoil good it things. Yet. He's the most entertaining person i think i've ever seen do anything i mean nice. just end stop full stop right there oh that's a that's a stunning endorsement i've ever heard yeah, one. i'm like that's a high bar all right <laughs> lynn boland thank you so much for being here today thank you guys all right we're going to take a quick break but when we come back we're going to be talking about the uh good of the nation precedent set during the impeachment trial yesterday um remember you can always text in your questions 970-491-5278 uh, my name is max hunter 
And I'm Ren Wadsworth. And yeah, feel free to text in your thoughts about that while we're having our roundtable. We'd love to include you in it. Yeah, we'd love to hear what you think. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review here on 90.5 KCSU, Fort Collins. Welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Ren Wadsworth. And my name is Maximus Hunter. We just heard from Lynn Boland, the curator of the Gregory, or director, I believe, of the Gregory Alicar um, Art Museum. And he was talking about Circle and Square, or uh, how is it pronounced? I can't say it now that Lynn's not here. Cirque et Acer, right? Circle et Carre. Carre, yeah. Wow, I really can't. That's Circle like- and Square. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, it's it's a hard one. French is a hard language, but well, that's open right now at the one. museum. If you want to listen to our interview with him, you can find it on our website, ninety point five. Or sorry, just kcsufm.com. That's under the news tab. But we're gonna keep the conversation rolling, and right now we're gonna talk about something that happened yesterday during the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump. So, um, Trump's lawyer. Uh, made the argument yesterday on the floor of the Senate that as president, Trump is act is always acting in what he believes to be the United States' best interests. And if the president believes that getting himself reelected is in the best interest of the United States, then the means in which he uses to do so um, are in the best interest of the United States and therefore non-impeachable, which setting aside how that might impact the the trial actively going on, because, you know, in that one, there's so much going on in that one. We could talk about that for a while, but what could that mean in general? Um, It could mean a lot of things. It could basically, what it means is unlimited power. Um, that coupled with the war powers resolution that's still going on right now um, basically means that either the president could say, oh, well, this decision is being made for the good of the nation or it's being made because of national security, which are the two um, positions that the president currently fills. And, and can take on those things. Now, there there is an argument for, say, uh, if the the president, you know, the president is fighting for the good of the nation and there, you know, maybe someone is trying to stop him. And then in that case, it could be in the national interest for the, for the president to do whatever they want to do. Well, I don't know. The issue with this is it's not how we set up our nation this is not how america is supposed to be run and it's not right uh the president's not supposed to be in control of everything the president i don't want to say is a figurehead but there are checks and balances in place specifically so that one person cannot just do whatever they want whenever they want essential parts of those checks and balances is impeachment which is what this affects and it's 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 interesting to consider um this specific argument for this case compared to the uh, the Bill Clinton impeachment scandal where this probably wouldn't have been this wouldn't have been an applicable argument but say for Watergate 
this would have been an applicable argument, right? Um, you know, Richard Nixon wanted to get dirt on the Democratic campaign because he thought it was a matter of national security. He thought it was a matter in the interest of the nation for him to get reelected and to find out what the Democrats were doing. And so he used illegal wiretapping methods, which is what he was going to be impeached for, but ended up resigning for beforehand. However, this defense in, in a case like that could actually be very relevant. Yeah. I don't know. This makes me incredibly uncomfortable because, like I discussed earlier, the War Powers Resolution is still in place and it has been grotesquely misused, not just by Trump, but by um, every president that's had it. Because when you give any person something that says, you can do whatever you want and we essentially cannot stop you, it just leads to unlimited power. Well, if you say that it's for one thing, um, and you justify it using, oh, well, it's for national security, or, oh, it's for the good of the nation. What's stopping you from doing whatever you want if it's for, quote, unquote, the good of the nation? Because what we're seeing now is that the Senate and the House will try and stop something that the president does, but well, they get they get vetoed. It, and, it, and it's still up to it's still up to the Senate and the House to decide whether or not this is going to be right. a legal precedent. The president could still be impeached yes or you know there could be some kind of discussion of that specific argument and how it retain re relates to the u.s constitution and i think that would be more of more of a constitutional scholar supreme court kind of thing but it does beg the question uh with the with the war powers act i think you th that's an interesting point you brought up because the war powers act i think there is one very specific reason the war powers act was put into place that's not just um, to give power to an acting president, but to prevent uh, inaction in moments that require swift action uh, and, and due to our bureaucracy, you know, due to how yes. our government works, some things take a while. That is true, but you have to ask the question when, and not to get too political, but the War Powers Act has been in place since Vietnam. And it's still in place when there's no... Well, if we want to talk about political precedents sent by the Vietnam War, we could spend probably six or seven right. shows on that anyway, one. But, but that's, a, that's a pretty pretty deep topic I don't there. Know. What it comes down to is it's too loose of a term for uh, so, so just let's, to say, like, what is are we talking, for the good of the nation? So we, what is yeah, for the good national of the nation. security? What, what does that fall under? Because that's going to be different for every president. Um, one president could say, "Well, it's for the good of the nation that we just cancel all." And I think all I think we could I think we could education. even cut out the word "the nation" and just focus for a second on that. That this um, this argument presupposes what is good, and right. there you you can't legislate laws around what is good because that's such a subjective broad term you know philosophically that's one of one of the oldest questions you know that's uh the search for what is good what is evil and right. uh we can't we can't legislate based off of the term good and How, what's hard now too is we are in a more polarized political atmosphere than we ever have been before uh political scholars will tell you this that we are more divided than we have ever been before so it's very hard issues. yeah it's very hard to just say for an entire nation to put all of their trust into one president when we are divided currently absolutely well and it's and at the end of the day it's it's going to come down to first of all uh the judge 
and um, whether or not he'll comment on that specific defense because I think that one, out of out of everything that's happened in this trial, that one is the one that is the moment most likely to set a precedent for how we approach the presidency in the future, um, at least. And, and a lot of it depends on how this trial goes. If Donald Trump is acquitted, then that may very well become a legitimate defense. If Donald Trump is impeached, then, um, I mean, I feel like people don't talk about it or think about it very much because uh, it, it doesn't, not a lot of people, not many people I've met think it's very likely, but there there's uh, still a chance the president could be removed from office within the month. Um, and people just don't talk about that very mm -hmm. much. But it, it's going to be really interesting to see how this goes forward. I think uh, this trial has had more happen than really anyone expected to happen in the trial, and it's still going. Uh, we had, uh, I think we're still doing questions from senators for the uh, for the judge and um, lawyers, and that one's been going on, so we'll keep following that. But in the meantime, I think we should probably move on. Yeah, I think we're going to take a quick little break, uh, but then when we come back, we're going to have some national day news with me and then a little bit of weather with max so you're gonna yeah. want to stick around for that you listen to the rocky mountain review here on 90.5 kcsu for collins This is the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm your host, Ren Wadsworth. And my name is Maximus Hunter. We just finished talking about the um, new development at the impeachment trial of the president involving the defense that anything the president does to get reelected is in the interest of the good of the nation and what that could mean. If you missed that, if you want to hear more about that, or if you missed our previous discussion about abstract art and the new exhibit at the Gregory, Gregory Alcare Museum... Uh, you can check that all, check that all out. I'm having a real, I'm having real trouble That's with this okay. one. You can check that out on our website, kcsufm.com, under the news tab, uh, and then go to Rocky Mountain Review. That's where you can find all of our stuff. It's all there. If you Every ever missed an episode, one. ever missed uh, interview you wanted to hear, you can find it all there, as well as some work by the other amazing people who work at the station. Um, but we're getting close to the end of our show. So, Ren, what day is it today? Today is Thursday, the 30th of January. I cannot believe January is not over yet. It has felt eternal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but unlike most days, there's only one, that's right, count them one national holiday we are celebrating today. But <gasps> Must it, be a big one. <laughs> you would think. But it is like most days that the national holiday is food related. Today's sole celebration goes to National Croissant Day. So okay. kind of in the theme of what we've been okay. talking about today, we talked a little bit about French abstract art, and now we're talking about... Oh, man, I like how croissants. you tie that together. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Um, so Definitely. Today, <laughs> today celebrates the flaky crescent-shaped pastry that can be served in several ways. The most common way is to have crispy on the outside and a so soft on the inside. And just a bunch of chocolate. Yeah. Well, no, eaten during dinner. But when filled with chocolate or cream, like Max was talking about, a croissant can make a delectable dessert or breakfast. I always ate those at breakfast. Say, why stop there or lunch or snack <laughs> or every midnight snack minute of every day yes yeah. <laughs> the national calendar says the per the key to a perfect croissant is laminating the dough laminating the dough like is a, a process book? 
Uh, well, it's a process by which butter is folded into the mixture, creating multiple thin layers of butter and dough. The result is a mouth-watering, flaky crust and airy body. Huh. This cool. versatile pastry can be eaten in many different ways, and you can observe National Croissant Day by stop, stopping by a local bakery and picking up some fresh croissants or by making your own at home. You know, I won't make my own at home because I'm not good at baking, but maybe I'll grab you one. You could get those um, Pillsbury ones that you crack open and scare, <laughs> I love scare those. yourself. I remember I never called them oh, croissants snap. growing up. I always called them crescent rolls. I just realized it's the uh, it's the Super Bowl on Sunday, and I'm going to need to get a bunch of Pillsbury stuff yeah. to mix with like cheese and pepperoni and just make uh, artery-clogging, delicious American Super Bowl food. Yeah. So maybe I'll pick up some croissants, too. But that is all I have for uh, National Days. Well, thanks, Ryan. But there might be something else for you guys if you if you listen with all of your might. Ooh, is that a ghost? Ooh. No, it's it's the weather. <laughs> All right, so today you can see scattered showers and some slight, slight snow as those temperatures drop to a high of 40 degrees, but it was lower than that. Let's all be honest, it was pretty cold today. Uh, moving on to Friday, the temperature should rise to 54 degrees, thankfully, with scattered showers, and you can expect those temperatures to keep on rising into your weekend. It's going to be nice, high of 64 degrees on Saturday and 66 on Sunday. We'll see if it actually gets up there, but uh, I can tell you what, it's going to be better than today. So look forward to that. Don't get too comfortable with that warmer weather, though, because on Monday, temperatures are going to drop all the way down to 30 with a really high chance of snow. People have been talking about it. It's been weeks. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a drill. It is happening. I'm it so is excited. snowing again. I'm taking pictures. I am moderately excited. I'm also a little scared. <laughs> we'll see what happens. And then if you want to know what to expect on Tuesday, it's Ren's birthday. So... <gasps> We're going to have some fun for that, but you're going to have to tune in on Tuesday, especially because it's Ren's birthday. Very special birthday episode of the Rocky Mountain Review. Um, I'm going to... Well, it's a surprise. <laughs> you know what? It's a surprise. I'm not going to spoil my plans. Ooh, okay. But yeah, it's going to be Ren's birthday, so tune in on Tuesday and to learn more about the weather. The big 2-0. Oh. No lo- I will no longer be a teen. You make me feel really old sometimes, you know that? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Mike, yeah, I'm going to be 23 soon. <laughs> Alrighty. But that is, unfortunately, the end of our show. But make sure you tune in next week. We've got a lot of stuff planned. It sounds like Max has some secrets. That he is birthday not... secrets. Birthday secrets. The best um, kind. Ah, have... uh, no. Chocolate secrets. <laughs> um, but before we end the show, we have to say a couple of thank yous. Yes. Uh, first of all, we want to thank Damien Castile, who made this song. It's and Bob. all of the cool songs that you heard on the show today. That's right. Um, we definitely like to thank our reporter, Brittany Liskey, as well as Coda Babcock, who wrote, uh, who both wrote the news. I don't know why I said that all so weird. I was trying to do something like cool with my voice. It didn't happen. We also would like to th- thank Lynn Boland, who came in and was the director of the Gregory Alicar Museum. Uh, he came in before on our Frosty Myers piece. If you'd like yes, to, very nice to check, that on a, check that out at kcsufm.com, you can. Yep, as well as everything we make. Yes. Uh, we'd also like to thank Julia Baddeley's, Hannah Copeland, Isaiah Reyes, Peter Walk, Monty Daniels, Mia Sawaya, Hunter Sinclair, Asher Korn, Desiree, Taylor, Sam, um, everyone. Everyone, everyone, Their parents everyone for having them. Thanks for, thanks for letting us have them. the Rocky Mountain Student Media. Yeah, seriously, we couldn't do this without you. And I couldn't do this without you, Ren. Thank Ooh. you for making the show with me. I couldn't do 
this without you, Max. You always keep me on my toes and keep me surprised. So that you... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take that as a compliment because your birthday is coming up. <laughs> I'm scared and excited, which could be the theme of my life. So <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely how I feel about the snow. And of course, we have to thank you, dear listener. We really could not do this without you. And it's we true. wouldn't want to do this without you. Also true. And with that, we'll, we'll see, see you, you next time. time.